This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good morning, good morning, and welcome to Radiotherapy on 3RRR. Happy sunny Sunday morning if you're listening live. I'm Dr Autonomy and I'm joined by Miss Medic, our local GP, Dr Malice, our local child psychiatrist and someone else very, very exciting. We have got the debut of a new radiotherapy panellist this morning. Woohoo! I'm going to tell you all about her in just a sec. She's called Rainbow Doc got to get that right. I was going to say Doc Rainbow, but it doesn't actually roll off the tongue as easily. <laughs> Rainbow Doc. So I'm going to tell you all about her. So exciting like times Rainbow today. Bright. Rainbow Rainbow Bright? Oh, wow. From the 80s, the little... The thing that's coming to mind is Punky Brewster, which I think is not related at all. No, not related, but similar was, I, outfit. I'm not sure. Right. Was Rain's a doctor... Autonomy born by the 1980s. Oh, oh malice. Thank well you. Well done. <laughs> uh, so on the show today with our Psycho. new panellist and our trusty regulars, we are going to be talking about a couple of things. One of our topics today is trichotillomania, which is a mouthful. Don't know if you've heard about it. It's more commonly known as the irresistible urge to pull out one's hair. And it's the cause of severe distress in uh, several clients that I see, several patients that Ms Medic sees. So um, our new panellist, Rainbow Doc, is going to tell us all about trichotillomania today, causes, treatment um, and maybe even a case study. As well as that, we're going to be talking to Dr Malice a bit later on in the show about ways to boost your baby's brain. And it's actually the the answers and the tips that he has are a lot more simple, I think, than I had imagined. So it's it's a segment not to be missed. And also there'll be a live demo from inside the studio how it's done. You're going to boost my brain. Well, I won't, but a mother... Yes, we'll see. (laughs) Stay tuned. I'm up for it. (laughs) And as well as that, we'll be chatting about some news stories uh, over the last week. It had occurred to me when I was listening to Melissa's things to do today earlier on this morning uh, that Halloween is very close and it would have been totally appropriate to have something along those lines in today's show but sorry guys it slipped right past me so if you can work some Halloween theme into the show at some stage later um, I'll be very impressed all that and more don't go away grab a cup of coffee and join us until we fill in the hour until 11 o'clock doctor doctor give me the news I got And we are back. Radiotherapy on 3RRR. Miss Medic, good morning. Back from your travels. Back from my travels. It is a time of transitions, I feel. I'm sort of transitioning into the new season. Feels very springish today, at least. Yeah. My littlest starts prep transition tomorrow. Big transition. Just feel, get that vibe that. The year's kind of just rounding up, don't you think? Yeah, just it's happening fast. Yeah, so it feels like a time of transitions. And, yes, a tra- big transition back to work and normal life from my life in the RV on the coast of California, <laughs> which was our so recent good. trip. Which was so fun. So I don't fun. even need to ask 
if it was great or not. I can just tell. <laughs> you can you get the vibe from me. I get the vibe, yeah. The just... California dreaming vibe. <laughs> Sounds amazing. Well, welcome back. We Thank missed you. you. Dr. Malice, hello. Well, it, it was Miss Maddie came back as sort of imitating bears for some reason. I'm not sure why. And doing growls and... But anyhow. Yeah. Did you say any? No, no, I didn't. But um, I was... I did feel at times slightly nervy. All the uh, big bear containers, the bear lockers that they have through Yosemite National Park do make you feel like at any moment a bear could just jump out from behind a tree but no did not see any i think they're pretty quiet animals actually Hmm. Mm. and they were so cute in the cartoons back in the last century with boo boo and yogi hello that's from yellowstone yes that neighborhood yeah yeah, that's right and our debut of our new panelist rainbow doc welcome Thank you. It's lovely to be here on this beautiful, beautiful day. I know. Thanks for being in a dark studio. (laughs) Sun. Sun is very therapeutic. Makes a difference, doesn't it? Now, I think we should do a tiny little bit of an intro, Rainbow Doc, because it's nice for people to have a little bit of information about new panellists, I think, and... Who is in their lounge room or their kitchen or their bedroom. Exactly, exactly. Mm. So I did a little bit of research. Uh, you are a very well-known and experienced local Melbourne psychologist and the sorts of things that I noted uh, that you are sort of known for and that you enjoy working with are a whole variety of things, including things such as working with people around shyness, around parenting, around sexual identity, around relationships, plus all the sort of, I guess, more traditional diagnostic-driven, you know, anxiety, depression, panic disorder, huge variety of things that you work within. Yeah. Yeah, I like variety. (laughs) I started off working with people um, with Parkinson's disease and their families. I didn't um, know that. Yeah, that was my research topic. Mm-hmm. Um, so looking at the psychosocial impact of Parkinson's disease. Um, and then, yeah, I've kind of wended my way through an awful lot of anxiety. Um, probably my own as well. Uh, I was just about to ask, is this, is this yours or the, or the client's? A little bit of both. Um, And now I find myself working a lot in the area of sexuality and gender. Mm -hmm. Um, Trichotillomania that we're going to talk a bit about. about. Um, And I'm also really interested in basically this sort of thing in, um, in education, community education and awareness around mental health. Hmm. Well, we are thrilled to have you join the team. Uh, specifically today, talk about trichotillomania, but lots more coming up on future shows. Mm. So let's put the trichotillomania on hold for a little bit and start in the way that we always do, which is just a brief catch up on a local news stories and, and what's been happening. Miss mm. Medic, have you had time to scout the newspapers since being back? Not a great deal, yeah. to be honest. But I was just thinking that we should probably mention, given that this week we will tick over into November, that mentioned Movember, which a lot of us know something about, particularly because it was born here in Melbourne by two mates that met for a beer and decided that could they bring back the humble moustache, and this was back in 2003, and they recruited their mates, about 30 of them at the time, 
um, and decided they'd raise some money for um, prostate cancer. So if cancer's affecting men specifically at that stage, well, they kind of... They paid each other, essentially sponsored each other to grow moustaches. So that's the birthplace of Movember. I didn't know that it started in Melbourne and you know, I know what Movember is and, you know, you see all these guys walking around with moustaches. Uh, but I actually don't know if off the top of my head I could have told you what it raised money for yeah. either. So now it's sort of expanded and overall at looking at... Um, raising money to support issues affecting men and their health. So the main ones they cover are prostate cancer, testicular cancer and suicide prevention. Um, And it's sort of born out of the overall knowledge, and I think they're now worldwide. Um, Yeah, and it's born out of the that we know that men die on average six years younger than women, sort of worldwide, and... Their aim is through research and education and advocacy for men to try and change that and close that gap. Amazing goal. It is, it is, Mm. and they're they're doing wonderful things. So if you are someone who's being asked to sponsor someone for Movember or interested in getting on board, have a look at the Movember website Um, and that's what it's all about, which I think is a very important one, particularly, you know, Suicide prevention in our young men, mm. hugely important. Just, Dr. just a question of why, are there any ideas or theories of why men should be at risk at, at the rate of 6% uh, or six years, was it? It's, yeah, on average six years. Years, yeah, that, that sounds so, quite significant. It is. Any it is ideas of why? I think there's lots of theories on why um, and in part it would be that there's the peaks of where men go through particularly risky times. For, so we know that um, the risk times for accident, accidental death and suicide happens sort of in the 20s and 30s. And then they do have an earlier sort of onset of cardiovascular illness as well. So those lifestyle conditions are still slightly higher in men, although that's changing a bit as well. Um, so I think those probably are the, the major ones. Mm-hmm. But um, I would ha- I'd have to do a bit more research as to why. I think there's also some thought about being the Y, the Y chromosome and whether mm-hmm. that's involved and women having two copies of the X chromosome, that there's some support of our little backup genes <laughs> on one chromosome. So there's, I think there's probably, you know, lots of complex reasons and I think that that's what a big thing that Movember are tackling, the group at Movember, trying to mm. understand what it is and how can we tackle that. So, Miss Medic, can I ask, will you be wearing a moustache? <laughs> <laughs> because you can. Mm. You don't need to have facial hair to find a moustache and stick it on. Well, stick that's on. true. Oh. And, but look, the oh. other thing is that it doesn't have to be the Movember, the way that they raise money now is not only through the moustache. There's move for Movember and that's about encouraging people to undertake some sort of exercise program so they make a commitment to maybe you know do so many so much distance with walks or runs and people sponsor them for that so if you if you don't Mm. want to don the facial hair you can still get involved in other ways great uh rainbow dock in the kind of spirit of what's been happening lately and, and catch-ups at the beginning of the show, um, I think you mentioned to me that you've been at a conference recently. 
I was at a conference last week, the week before last now, actually, mm-hmm. the um, National Carers Counselling Conference, which is the first conference of its sort. Sounds like a bit of a tongue twister. It is. Carers Counselling Conference. Indeed. (laughs) Um, It's the first time that people have, that the carers organisations have held a conference specifically for counselling. And it was done out of need, I guess. Um, And it was amazing to see a bunch of people, a bunch of people working in counselling, focusing specifically on the needs of carers because carers often get very much ignored. Mm. There's the person with the uh, mental health condition, the physical health condition, and then there's the people around them, or often the person around them, um, that kind of gets ignored and their whole life can be turned upside down and almost sucked dry by their attention to someone else. Mm. And and the piece that I... um, took away from that conference was and it was a recurring theme which was the guilt of people um, of doing anything for themselves if they're a carer Mm. the sense that they have to be you know 24 7 with someone and finding it really hard to move away and look after themselves in 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 any way Um, and of course incredibly important that people that are carers do self-care because otherwise they're not able to do the caring you know that they are doing it's incredibly huge unpaid workforce yeah and and i was pondering just then if if kind of 24 7 your life is really about someone else's life and caring for them and, and their needs being so great it would actually i imagine be very difficult to even tap into what your own needs are because there would be so little space to just stop and and uh you know sense what you actually need uh yeah. that i wonder if that even first step of acknowledging wow i need this or i need some support or i need some time off or i need some counseling whatever it might be i i wonder if people haven't even had the time to get to that step of acknowledging what they need i think the first step before that is acknowledging that you are and recognizing that you are a carer you know, mm. so this conference was organised by um, Carers Victoria. You know, unless you recognise and identify as a carer, you're not going to be you're not going to be reaching out to get some support, the support that is out there, mm. such as counselling, mm. um, or meet with other people in similar situations just to you know validate what's what's what you're what you're doing, what's going on for you. Mm. So um, yeah, really hard to to identify as as a carer and then as you say to to work out what it is that you need you know life can easily kind of disappear from you if you're not careful mm. and was there any message indeed how to do that first step of self-recognition in change of role within the family relationship or the friendship relationship when you step into the role as zone uh, the, the carer's zone um I don't know. I don't know how people actually do that. Mm. I think there is a sudden, sudden recognition, normally because of the sense of where have I gone mm. or I can't do this anymore mm-hmm. or kind of a sometimes a, a desperation of um, wanting other people to somehow help you, mm. somehow help you, but what on earth can they do, you know? But that sounds like pretty well Isolating. down the road. Once you say, how did I get here, that, that's sort of so far down the river 
It's where, where do they jump into the river? How I, could I th- they recognise that? Yeah, I, th- I think that it is often mm. quite a way down the road because mm. often people move into... Well, there's two ways, <laughs> which sounds obvious, but, but you're either moving gradually because mm. someone has a chronic progressive condition or... Um, or there's something that happens all of a sudden. Yes. There's, an, there's an accident or there's a sudden onset and you're sort of thrown into this crisis management, which isn't the time that you're going to acknowledge that you're a care. It's going to come afterwards. Mm. So I think it is, is usually quite a little bit down the track. Yeah. So I wonder if in this sort of program, as you said, one of your keen interests is raising community awareness the message might be that it should not be the uh, on the onus on the carer but their nearest and dearest to say, do you realise you've just crossed a boundary into caring? Yeah, Because be that self-recognition may just be beyond most of us at the time. Yeah, I think it would be fabulous if people could recognise that. I think, mm. I think what often happens when I, I mention guilt is that if there are other family members, the other family members aren't the primary carer. Mm. And therefore the acknowledgement that someone is is also acknowledgement that they're not. not. Now, that, that would be then a reverberating guilt from the non-participating partners rubbing off doubly on mm. the actual carer. Mm. So, OK, folks out there, uh, sort of put the guilt away and get all of us should get a little bit real that if someone in our circle, family, friends, is in the carer's role, let us let them know that that's what they're doing. And encourage them yeah. to get support and Self-care. get respite. Yeah. yeah. I think that in medicine in general, we're getting better at this. So when we see, because often there are medical professionals involved with the care of the patient, um, that we are, we are much better now, I hope, mm. at checking in with the carer. Like, and how are you doing? You know, mm. how's how's this going for you? Have you got support? Are you getting a break? How's this tracking? I think we are getting better at that. So I think there's obviously a way to go. Um, and what I generally see with carers is that they're often at in the initial phases overwhelmed with the needs of their the person they're caring for, that they seem so big, so monumental, so important, that it takes some time before they can see their needs, which initially seems smaller, for them to see them as significant. So I guess it, that's it's almost part of the kind of natural trajectory of caring but you're right in that if we could just pick up on these things early and make sure our carers are doing okay then um it's they're less likely to get that down the track where they've got caring fatigue or carers fatigue Mm. there used to be a phrase caring for the carers that in the olden times was a very catchy phrase but I think, as Miss Medica said, that today we've revised that and we sort out, in fact, what is compassion fatigue, what's burnout, and what, in fact, importantly in the crisis situations is vicarious trauma mm. because then, of course, no-one knows that they're traumatised. Mm. Mm. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR-FM in Melbourne, Australia. Rainbow Doc... Your first major segment on on radiotherapy is going to be about trichotillomania, which I think all three of us have kind of pricked our ears up about because I have clients with trichotillomania. Miss Medic, you have a couple of patients that you see. And Dr Malice, little did we know you actually researched this topic in your past. So we are all ears. Rainbow Doc, 
it's a mouthful to say, isn't it? Trichotillomania. Do people call it trick for short or can we just call it hair pulling? Trico. Trico. All right. Trico is what I find people call it. Okay. Um, affectionately, I guess. Mm. Um, and I'm not surprised that you've all had experience with it or come across it because it's estimated it's 2% of the population. Wow. Mm. And that is a lot of people. That's yeah. a lot of people to have a condition that not many people know about and certainly have trouble spelling and <laughs> pronouncing. How many L's are there in it? You know? um, but trichotillomania has been around for a very long time. I mean, it's just the phrase to pull your hair out when you're stressed yeah. is an indication that there's some kind of knowledge that that's somewhere that we can go if we are stressed. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I think it's always interesting to look at language and look at those phrases that are kind of embedded in our in our vernacular, if you want, that um, actually are saying an awful lot more than we the, the, that we than we're aware of unless we we analyse them. Mm. So, pulling your hair out, hair pulling, two percent of the population. Very, it's it's not known amongst the general population. People don't know about it, so it's it's hidden. Mm. And any condition that is hidden um, uh, entails a, a high degree of shame around it. Mm. Um, and the shame is what makes it very hard to work with to treat. It is a treatable condition, but um, as anyone knows that works in a therapeutic sense, working with shame can be really challenging it's really difficult because shame is so deeply embedded in us when when we have that Mm. um so i can hear people that have never heard of this and hear two percent of the population how come i don't know about this it's because people hide it because of the shame people can end up with no hair at all find themselves wearing hats or wigs or people can get very clever at manipulating their hair, growing their hair long and then putting their hair up to cover the, the patches which have become bald mm. so that so that people don't don't know. But essentially it develops for self-protection as most most conditions do. Mental health conditions often are um, particularly when they're anxiety related, this is known as an impulse control disorder. But there is um, a high level of anxiety associated with it. Um, And it it develops as protection against something, whatever that is. There's no particular known cause. There's a high level of distress associated. And it's more common in uh, females than males. Um, And can... The onset generally tends to be early early in life, in childhood or early teenage. Um, And treatment um, is medication sometimes or behaviour therapy. So teaching other people other things to do if you want rather than pull hair. And the hair pulling can be in your head from your scalp, um, often a particular part of the scalp particular part of the hair which kind of becomes the favorite spot or um people that pull their hair talk about finding the particular hair that feels just right to pull so a particular texture of the hair Mm. when people pull their hair they often put it in their mouth afterwards will play with the hair 
um, after it's been pulled, so that's part of it. And there's a sensation that develops almost like a, in the tips of the fingers that are involved in this, as well as in the hair, in the, in the hair follicle from where the hairs come, that gives a sort of um, a buzz, if you want, sort of a soothing. soothing. Yeah. 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 I've also seen this in a child that pulled out all of her eyelashes yeah. as yeah. well, and that was a... That was the first time I had seen that, but it was also in the setting of a lot of anxiety. Yeah. And it became that habitual... Eyelashes, eyebrows, pubic hair, other people's hair, sometimes a sibling, and sometimes a dog's hair. So it can kind of be trichotillomania by proxy, if you want. Mm. But it's not your own hair, it's someone else's hair. It could be chest hair, if if, if you have chest hair, leg hair, any hair. Um, but there's something about the sensation of the hair and I think the smallness of it and then this impact as you pull, it's kind of like a self-harming um, uh, impact on, mm. on the body. Feels gives you some sensation. And I think, you know, if I think about the, the clients I've seen who come in with this as their sort of primary complaint... It's really hard to convey the distress that they feel about this, but it's it's quite extreme and they they want to stop and they find it so frustrating and there's often yeah there's social consequences with wigs that they have to wear or hats or yeah as you said ways that they have to wear their hair to cover a certain patch uh, and they they desperately want to stop but they can't they don't know how and they don't have a clear understanding of why they're even doing it. it it's sometimes, I think, has almost an, an unconscious um, element and they sort of don't even realise sometimes until they've been doing it for 20 minutes. And I, I can't help thinking about it in the same way that I think about uh, smoking or drinking or, you know, eating, all the other things we do in Gambling. life. Gambling to mm. give ourselves... To self-soothe, yeah, yeah. and to, to calm ourselves in some way and... You know, before we know it, we're doing that thing that we don't want to be doing, but we are because we need it. Or nail biting. Or nail biting. Yeah. Skin yeah. picking Skin is the picking. same. It's very yeah. similar. Yeah. 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 And so, can you help us understand? I guess that that aspect of it that is soothing in some way. How how does that work? Why is it soothing? Uh, and if if hair pulling does serve some purpose, I guess to calm people down and soothe them. What does that mean in terms of treatment? What so generally I think I just happens? Five is, questions in no, one. it's okay. What generally, and I'll ignore all of them yeah, and just good. say what I was going to say anyway. Um, <laughs> You're fitting in just perfectly. <laughs> that didn't take you at long home, to pick up already. on at all. <laughs> Doctor Autonomy, I have incredible respect for you, but I will just say what I was going to say. Great. Anyway, wouldn't want which to is that. Um, there are kind of two ways that the pulling happens. One is when when people are kind of in a bubble and completely unaware that they're doing it. So there, it's uh, let's let's call that um, unfocused. Hmm. And then there's focused hair pulling, which is when you actually know that you're doing it. So if you know that you're doing it, you have the option to try and stop. If you don't know that you're doing it. How, how on earth are you going to try and stop? So in term, a, a behavioural intervention, mm. if, you, if someone doesn't know they're doing, is very hard to, to, um, to implement. But I guess that one of the first things to do is to try and move 
that uh, unfocused to focused. So try and build someone's awareness by, um, you know, finding out as much as possible about about the hair pulling. You know, where does this happen? Where do you where do you find you do this? What has happened? just before you do this how do you do it which hand do you use which which fingers do you use how are you sitting are you sitting are you lying down what are you what are you doing when you're pulling your hair to try and build the awareness so that there becomes a sense that p- potentially there is a choice about what i do in that moment where i find myself thrown into it hmm. yeah so building that awareness is 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 one of the first steps in helping people with it. Yeah. And I'm wondering if if in that sort of unfocused habitual category where people, yeah, that, that sort of category where 20 minutes later someone realises they've been doing it and they didn't even realise when they started, if we're thinking about this as a self-soothing technique, you know, it serves some kind of purpose, I'm thinking about it in the same way that I would think about for example, um, alcohol use that that is yeah. impulsive and, and out of control, that I would never try to help someone to stop drinking without first addressing all the other aspects of their life that are causing them to need a drink, if that makes sense. And so is there an element of that with trichotillomania where if someone is using this technique because it's soothing them in some way that you can't actually just deal with that habit it's it's about well what else is going on in your life and how can we help you to bring your anxiety or stress or whatever it is down so that you have less need to self-soothe does that make sense for sure i mean the hair pulling is the symptom Mm. yeah so it's really important to look at the whole picture you know the the family of origin stuff the um the uh, self-esteem, what's going on, you know, the in- internal world of that person, actually what's going on, rather than honing in just on the pulling. And in fact, you know, if you, if you, if you hone in, I, I believe my experience is that if you hone in just in the pulling and just try and treat that, you don't get anywhere. Mm. You might initially change a little bit, but it's going to slip right back because the, the, the underlying stuff, whatever that is, is still there. So mm. you have to go go into that and that is really really confronting when when i work with someone with this with with trichotillomania the first thing i say is this is going to be really hard really hard you know and you are amazing to have the courage to 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 start this process Hmm. you know given that the level of shame that people experience and you are amazing if you are able to 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 commit to it and stay with it even in those really unpleasant moments where it just it's just all too hard you know to persist with it often people set themselves this is uh, a couple of times i've seen um people who are about to be married (laughs) or they've got a wedding coming up in maybe six months' time and they have vowed to themselves that they will not be pulling by the time they get married because they have a sense of how is this going to be when I, if, if I have children, if I have small children, how am I going to find time or space to be able to have this kind of secret thing that, that, that I, and I say it's a, a friendly calling it trico it kind of becomes a friend because of the self-soothing element of it how am i going to do that actually how could i possibly have children Mm. 
when I do this, you know, this is the, the, the kind of thinking that, that, that might be present for someone mm. that is um, hair pulling. I imagine there's a degree of severity so that the people that are attending, given you said that 2% of the population, this is an issue, um, that there, there's possibly you're seeing the ones where this becomes a problem for them. Mm. Yeah. Um, whether it really is impairing their level of function. Um, but uh, it makes me think that so many of us have a, some little way to self-soothe and how many of us pick up our phone <laughs> to just quickly look at Instagram or that quick little hit to help distract us from that, you know, whatever you want to call it, that unease that we feel at times within ourselves. Um, and it's just interesting that... Um, like the, we possibly all have a behaviour like this, whether we know it or not, um, but when it gets to the point where it impairs our daily life, that sort of behaviour to self-soothe, then it's problematic. Mm-hmm. I mean, as you're saying that, I realise I'm sitting there and I'm kind of pinging the skin on my neck, <laughs> no, yeah. which I don't think is something that I do regularly. But, yes, you're right, we all have something. We all have something. If, if people that, for instance, bite their nails don't go and necessarily do anything about it or fiddle with something or whatever whatever it is we all have that stuff yeah yeah you're right it's only when it's really severe and interferes with your life that it becomes problematic and and people seek help with it Mm. Mm. dr think that's the point of the severity of this cause whatever it is that if this is soothing then the flip side of it is how much soothing is needed is a reflection of how much the cause is intense and extreme and I just wonder if it's worthwhile to tease out what's the shame about is it about the soothing or in fact the secrecy in the family system that is so upsetting and distressing that is the secret shame because in my experience I had the same issues but with a three-year-old now a three-year-old has no awareness and in fact she was brought by mother because she was being teased by other children for her bald patch. Now, as you said quite rightly, there's all these manoeuvres how to get around it. And she, the mother, said, I put a little woolen beanie on her head. But that, of course, became problematic around this time of the year, October, November, December, because it was so hot. And so she was really trying to do the cover-up, literally covering the little girl's head until she realised that that was not going to work. So it was a point of desperation that outweighed the secret shame and hiddenness. And indeed, for a three-year-old, the option of drugs I didn't actually think was ethically right because we don't know what that does to the developing brain and so on. And what turned out, in fact, is exactly, as you said, uh, the, the family story gradually unfolded, that it was just in a way you could understand the shame sensation, but it was so much abuse was going on, not actually to the child, but the two partners were hurting each other so much and vicariously the child who witnessed this, she wasn't herself directly abused, but this is where I learned one of the deep lessons of vicarious trauma. You actually, all you have to be is in the presence of someone who themselves is suffering a great deal and a child will just soak that up and therefore she had to go and relieve her stress in her own way. And the shame, the shame mm. wasn't about 
the hair pulling. No, the shame came yes. way before that. Way before that, yeah. yes. And in children sometimes, you know, it, it sorts itself out, you know, in the same way that children will have a favourite teddy or a rug or something like that. They don't have it by the time they're 12, 13. It's, it's sort of disappeared. And hair pulling can be the same, at oh. sucking mm. a thumb or yes. whatever. It disappears as, as, as people... Mm. Well, could I just say that that's the better pathway. Yeah. The less good pathways where it actually deteriorates into, as we said, stimulating oneself and then that is actually the precursor of a number of youngsters who I saw in adolescence who were self-cutting. And when you take a careful history, they had a history of, you know, for a few years and then it w- went away, supposedly. Yeah. yeah. So I think we should just be mindful of mm. the long term if one overlooks it. In the, the, the child that I was looking after, in fact, the solution was the mother left the abusing partner and therefore the stress level went down. And very interesting, the mother said to me, I know my little girl's getting better. And I sort of puffed my chest saying, well, of course, I'm a great doctor and so on. <laughs> you had are, nothing, Dr. It Dr. had Mellis. nothing mm. to do with me. It had to do with the mother said, now my little girl says it hurts when I pull my hair. Meaning that while she was in that terrified state, she was numb. So the mother, once she heard her little girl say, oh, mummy, it's hurting, it's hurting, it's hurting, she then stopped because it naturally was too much to bear, the, the hair pulling. But in the meantime, mother had reduced the stress level for, by re- rearranging the family situation. Yeah, sounds like a very astute mother. Mm. You're listening to Radiotherapy on 3RRR and we're talking about trichotillomania more commonly known as hair pulling. I guess just to wrap up the discussion, can I come back to something you said right at the beginning, Rainbow Doc, which was there are effective treatments for this and you've seen real change uh, with clients that you work with. Can you tell us a bit about that? Um, Is it possible to stop? Is it possible to uh, change this habitual process? I usually say to people exactly what you've said miss medic that this is something because people will say is it clients will say you know is it possible for this to stop Mm. and i said yes it is possible but it's also possible that this is just your thing you know this is just the thing you do and you can you can reduce how you're doing it so it doesn't have the same impact and you may find yourself in really stressed times going back to it but not in the same way that it used to be so it's not the same problematic Mm. thing so it takes time it takes time persistence commitment and sometimes money Mm. as well to be able to do that yeah because it's not you know you can't do it in 10 sessions um and the the other thing that is really helpful is for people to talking about the shame is to talk to other people that have the same experience if you want to to come out about it because i mean i don't know if anyone here remembers when bulimia wasn't known about but um it was actually diana spencer who came out as bulimic that kind of was one of the things that changed that that someone very very public as as public as you could possibly be for those who are too young diana spencer of the royal family i think you're speaking about is that right (laughs) yes this is a uk (laughs) royal family yes and she (laughs) so so once it was out there there were all these people that said i'm bulimic that's what it is i thought it was just me and it's the same with 
trichotillomania, which is why it's important we're talking about it today, yeah. that there may be people listening who are saying, oh, my God, that's me, that's what I do, mm. um, and may see it as a problem or not as a problem, but nevertheless it may be just quite distressing to to hear us talking about this, to, if you're having that realisation that, oh, my God, that's me. Um, support that there is a support group in Victoria. Um, the Anxiety Recovery Centre runs a support group um, for people with trichotillomania, and they've run retreats that have been very successful just in normalising this. You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, Three Triple R, one hundred two point seven in Melbourne. You're speaking with myself, Dr. Autonomy, Miss Medic, Rainbow Doc and Dr. Malice and we've been talking about hair pulling but we're going to switch topics now to a topic that Dr. Malice is going to bring us which is about boosting your baby's brain and it can actually be much more simple than you think it is and I think we're going to have a live demonstration that I know very little about that I might be involved Where's in. Where's the so baby? Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm asking, that's what I I'm wondering. I think this is the situation where you often hear therapists saying, you know, there's a baby part in all of us, there's a grown-up part in all of us and today we're going to have a demo <laughs> of how a baby part is being addressed by a grown-up not one part, but actually two people, just to get a feel for what motherese actually sounds like, because a lot of it is going to be in the hearing. Now, what motherese is, is a word that often is talked about as baby talk, or child, for researchers who get a bit heady about it, is infant-directed or child-directed talk, because they don't like loose words like baby talk. I mean, that's not cool in, in <laughs> academia. Motherese sounds very intellectual. Well, it does. <laughs> and we will hear how it translates into everyday life. And the question is, who discovered this? It, it, it's actually a natural instinct. It is universal, at least as far as we know in the Western cultures, that grown-ups use motherese uh, and I should point out it's not only with infants and children. There's an adult-to-adult -adult version of motherese, which often is to an expression of fondness or to demote and, in a way, infantilise someone, which is it's really a form of mild abuse. There's also uh, motherese, if you like, or baby talk towards pets. And we often talk to our pets and they do respond much like actual babies do respond. And, of course, it would be absolutely normal between intimate partners who often use endearing... Honey! Yeah. <laughs> ah, the first demo of what motherese sounds like. Honey, sweetheart. Did you Your hear... husband just started doing the, unloading the dishwasher as soon as he heard that. It's Fingers magic. crossed. And that is precisely the reason we, we have this in our culture, because it strengthens bonds and relationships and it regulates and it brings us close when it's used appropriately, not in the humiliating and degrading way. And you've actually demonstrated all the components. You draw out the language, honey. It's hun <laughs> honey. It's not a quick, short... Honey. Yeah. Honey. That sounds very different. Yeah. Very different mother... Mm -hmm. Also motherese. That but... made my husband start unloading the dishes. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, we're going to get some real issues after this show at home, I think, but let's stay here with the script. Or maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> and we should say it goes two ways with mothers and or children and infants. It goes that the baby actually then responds to the motherese 
usually with a glorious smile, reaching out, and that's the feedback loop that keeps this going. And with dishwashers, I'm not sure how that's going to work, (laughs) but you can experiment on that. And the point here is that it's not actually the word you say. You're not actually talking about honey, the concrete sweetener. You're actually using it in the sing-song way of fondness and playfulness of honey. And when you say to some mothers, do say to their children, you are so sweet, I could eat you. (laughs) That's not a cannibalistic declaration. That is a term of dear endearment and caring and loving and, and absolutely being in love with the moment. Now, the question then is, is this something that is better taught or left natural? And while we are lighthearted on the one side in ordinary healthy development, of course, there's real issues on the other side when a mother is incapable for various reasons, usually from stress, mental health issues or lack of opportunity. And if we just go back to, as as we heard earlier, the importance of language, we're talking about mother tongue, the foundation of our speech being brought into life. Now, what is more profound than hearing the mother's voice as a teacher? It's not school teachers or kinder teachers. It's preceded even before birth by the vibrations that the baby feels as sound waves in the womb. And that's mummy's voice. So baby talk starts well, well before birth. And that's just a reminder of why it's called mother tongue and not radio triple R tongue or ABC tongue or whatever other tongue. And the point here is that the face-to-face contact with mother is the best booster of brain power. How do we know this? Experiments, for example, at the age of two give questionnaires to parents who have practised motherese versus non Children by the age of two have a vocabulary of over 400 words with motherese parenting compared to under 200 words for non-motherese. This is not a criticism. It's just experimental evidence that it enriches the areas of the brain, the networks through the phase, if those who are interested, through myelination of the brain tracks. And that is actually the reason why instinctively motherese is short words and sing song. Now, for a quick demo, <laughs> could we have a, 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 a very short demo of, let's say, a, a child doctor autonomy or baby doctor autonomy brings home a beautiful painting for Mother Miss Medic? Okay. All that comes to mind when I imagine being a two year old at the moment is I do it, I do it, myself, myself. <laughs> But let me try something different. Um, so you've just given Mummy a, a mummy drawing picture. you did, which is a glorious drawing. Mama, I did picture. <laughs> this is so weird. Um, wow, what a beautiful drawing. What's this you've got here? This is dog. <gasps> and I can see that. Look at that dog's fluffy tail. There you go, demonstration over. Absolutely. Now, that that is firstly the instant exchange of the sing-song. Let's forget the the content. It was actually there was a duet going on. Mm. There was a singing, a synchrony, and what in technical language is called the prosody. 
the actual musicality of language. It's not the content, it's how it's done. And so the take-home message from this is practice makes perfect and you can't get motheries wrong because your little one will actually feed back when it's not online. And the more you practice, the more you're boosting, to be fair, both your brain powers. And Miss mm, Manning? Interestingly, I had an email this week from a, a... There's a course being run at the Women's Hospital teaching primary caregivers... Oh, so primary physicians, so GPs, um, a little bit about the interaction with babies during those sort of early checkups, so the six-week checks, in order to encourage modelling of that similar type of dialogue help mothers learn it as well so it's not sort of done in an overt teaching way but just demonstrating that interaction so examining the child going look at you oh look at these little legs and that sort of things in order to demonstrate to mothers that might not be finding it so natural and what I love about this is the simplicity you know everyone can do this you talk about boosting your baby's brain development and resilience and it's just about talking to them in the way that comes naturally. And yeah. mutually beneficial for mums and their moods as well. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.